0: This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to another episode of the Diabetes Knowledge into Practice podcast and the final episode in this series. This educational activity is accredited for up to 0.25 AMA PRA Category 1 credits, so to claim your credits answer the pre and post activity questions at diabetes.knowledgeintopractice.com which you can find a link to in the episode notes if you're listening in a podcast app. This episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS who've had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. Today we're discussing highlights from the 58th European Association for the Study of Diabetes Annual Meeting, or EASD. This year was a hybrid event, with delegates able to join either in person in Stockholm or online via the virtual platform. As usual, the Congress featured a huge number of presented abstracts as well as symposia. This year also saw the publication of the updated ADA EASD consensus report on the management of hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes. To discuss some of the highlights related to type 2 diabetes from the conference, we're joined by Professor Apostolos Stappas, who's Professor of Medicine and Diabetes and Head of the Second Medical Department and the Diabetes Centre at Aristotle University of Thessaloniki in Greece. He's also a senior research fellow at the University of Oxford in the UK and has been involved since 2012 in the development of the joint ADA and EASD statements on the management of hyperglycemia and type 2 diabetes, including this year's version. You can find links to his disclosures as well as references discussed in today's interview in the episode notes. So firstly one of the big stories in type 2 diabetes from the congress this year was the presentation of the updated ADA and ESD consensus statement. Could you describe the key takeaways from the update?
1: Yeah so the 2022 version of the ADA is the consensus statement for management of hyperglycemia in type 2 diabetes lists the four main components that should be incorporated in care offered to patients with type 2 diabetes namely management of glycemia, body weight and cardiovascular risk factors, and choice of glucose-lowering medications that confer cardiorenal protection. Now, in particular, this consensus, more than previous versions, underlines the importance of weight loss for glycemic management, weight-related complications, quality of life, and uh, management of cardiometabolic disease risk factors. And it also provides detailed guidance based on the totality of evidence available for specific subgroups of patients, like for example, the ones with multiple cardiovascular risk factors. Now, moreover, the 2022 ADA-ESD consensus uh, uh, version introduces a series of principles that should guide diabetes care, highlighting, for example, the importance of social determinants of health, of uh, local setting characteristics and individual needs and preferences, for successful implementation of available interventions to prevent complications and optimize quality of life of people uh, living with type 2 diabetes. Uh, in particular, the consensus supports that we must address the living and working conditions of people with type 2 diabetes, all parameters like you know, education or income, if we really want to support our patients to improve the health outcomes. And I think it is imperative to establish and refine quality improvement efforts in diabetes care at the local level to equitably implement evidence-based interventions to the benefit of all people with type 2 diabetes.
0: And what does the update mean specifically for selecting first-line therapy in type 2 diabetes?
1: Choice of initial therapy is primarily based on patient's cardiovascular risk profile. In particular, if a patient has a history of let's say an atherosclerotic event such as stroke or myocardial infarction, then a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLT2 inhibitor with proven cardiovascular benefit should be the first line of treatment. If heart failure or chronic kidney disease are the predominant comorbidities, then an SGLT2 inhibitor should be prioritized over GLP-1 receptor agonists. Patients with type 2 diabetes would not have evidence, evidence atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, heart failure, or chronic kidney disease, but have multiple risk factors, uh, in fact, at least three for developing cardiovascular disease, like, let's say, obesity, hypertension, dyslipidemia, increased age, or uh, smokers, they can also benefit from treatment with a GLP-1 receptor agonist or an SGLD-2 inhibitor. Nevertheless, this recommendation is supported by subgroup analysis, from cardiovascular outcome trials suggested that the relative cardiovascular benefits of these agents do not substantially differ between participants with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and those solely with risk factors for developing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. However, it should be noted that the absolute benefits are expected to be significantly less pronounced in the larger subgroup. And this is something that should be discussed in the deliberation with the patient.
0: And what about in the situation where a patient needs to advance to more intensive or injectable therapy where needed? Are there new factors to consider here?
1: Insulin could be the initial treatment choice only in very specific circumstances of very severe hyperglycemia. For example, if hba one c is above 10%. In all other cases, insulin treatment should be reserved only when glycemic control cannot be achieved with a combination of other drugs, and in particular, after the patient has already been treated with a GLP-1 receptor agonist. Now, even in these cases, treatment with agents with cardiovascular benefits should be maintained despite initiation of insulin. Now, in this context, of course, I think it is appropriate to highlight the enhanced comparative effectiveness in reduction of HbA1c and body weight of weekly GLP-1 receptor agonists like semaglutide and Tzepatite, which is a novel uh, dual GIP and GLP-1 receptor agonist that has recently been approved by the FDA to improve glucose control. Semaglutide and tirzepatide have both been shown to reduce HbA1c by as much as 1.5 or even 2%, while significantly reducing body weight. Finally, when required, insulin treatment should begin with basal analogs. And if glycemic control is suboptimal, as measured by, let's say, Hb1c, or in the case of CGM, by time in a glycemic range, normal glycemic range, then pradial insulin can be added by mean of you know, either basal class, multiple daily injections, or pre-mixed insulin regimens.
0: The Congress also included 44-year follow-up results from the UKPDS trial. Could you describe the key findings from this and what they mean for clinical practice today?
1: UKPDS is a landmark trial in which participants with newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes were originally randomized to three arms, two intensive glycemic control arms, one with sulfonylurea or or insulin and one with metformin, and a non-intensive glycemic control arm with Conventional and management with diet. Now, upon completion of the trial over a median of 10 years, participants in the metformin group had a lower incidence of mortality and any diabetes related endpoints. And participants in the sulfonuria or insulin group had a lower incidence of microvascular complications, both of course, compared with the conventional group. Now, an equally important finding of UKPDS was the legacy effect that was demonstrated during the observational follow-up period of the study up to 30 years after the original RCT back in 2007. What is meant by legacy effect is the persistence of the beneficial effects in diabetes endpoints in the groups of patients originally randomized to intensive glycemic control. Now, today, 14 years later, after the legacy effect was first documented, Administrative data from the participating centers located in in England from the NHS show that both the glycemia and the metformin legacy effect have remained virtually unchanged in in participants who had been originally randomized to any of the two intensive arms. Now, In particular, as compared to the conventional group of the original RCT, all-cause mortality has been reduced by... 25%, and by 11% in participants originally randomized to metformin or uh, sulfonuria or insulin, respectively, while the respective reductions in any diabetes related endpoint were uh, almost uh, 20% and 10%. These findings support that early achievement and sustainability of glycemic control is critical for increasing survival and reducing diabetes complications in people with type 2 diabetes. Uh, from a more practical perspective, uh, the key take-home message is probably that uh, among newer antidiabetic agents with proven cardiovascular benefits that occur irrespective of glucose control, those agents that have the most impressive glucose-lowering effects should probably be further prioritized.
0: Now, another major presentation was the results of the DELIVER trial. How did these add to the existing evidence base around the use of SGLT2 inhibitors?
1: DELIVER fills clinically important evidence gaps about the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors in people with heart failure. And in this regard, DELIVER included heart failure patients with either mildly reduced ejection fraction between 40 and 49%, or preserved ejection fraction, more than 50%, even those at the higher end of the ejection fraction spectrum, more than 60%. Equally distributed among these three groups. Patients could have been enrolled either as outpatients or during hospitalization for heart failure, while 45% of the patients had also type 2 diabetes. Over a medium of 2.3 years, the primary outcome of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure was reduced by approximately 20% in participants receiving dapagliflozin compared to placebo and uh, this benefit was consistent in all clinically relevant subgroups regardless of ejection fraction or presence of diabetes at baseline dapagliflozin also improved symptoms physical limitations and quality of life in these patients now these findings Add to previous evidence from other trials with SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with heart failure by further corroborating the salutary effects of SGLT2 inhibitors as a drug class in heart failure and supporting their use as key therapy in heart failure regardless of diabetes status or ejection fraction. These benefits are particularly important for patients with preserved ejection fraction for whom effective therapies are lacking as opposed to patients with reduced ejection fraction. It is also important to note that even though the relative benefits of dapagliflozin and other SGLT2 inhibitors in cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure was identical between patients with and without diabetes, the absolute benefit is more pronounced in the former subgroup given that patients with type two diabetes have a higher baseline cardiovascular risk.
0: Now, looking into the future, there were also several presentations on developmental insulin technologies at the conference, particularly the once-weekly insulins which are undergoing clinical study. Could you describe some of these findings?
1: Insulin ICODEC is a novel once-weekly basal insulin analog designed to cover the basal insulin requirements for a full week with a single injection. Currently the, the basal insulin products with the longest duration, they are injected uh, once daily. Now, during the annual meeting, the annual ESD meeting presented new data from the phase three uh, onwards two trial, which was a 26 week efficacy and safety uh, trial investigating once weekly ICOtec versus once daily uh, insulin degludec in uh, I think more than 500 patients with type two diabetes. Who were switching from daily insulin. And the primary endpoint was change in Hb1c at week 26 with Icodec as compared with insulin degludec. Now, based on the results presented, 37% of the adults treated with once weekly Icodec achieved an Hb1c of less than 7% without experiencing severe or clinically significant hypoglycemia, compared with 27% of those treated with uh, degludec, And meanwhile, satisfaction at uh, 26 weeks, as assessed by the DDSQ, diabetes treatment satisfaction questionnaire, was significantly greater with ICODEC. And finally, there was uh, less than uh, uh, one hypoglycemic event per patient year exposed for insulin ICODEC or insulin Deglutec, and no statistically significant uh, difference between the arms. In terms of the clinical relevance of, of these findings, once weekly uh, insulin ICODEC could offer people with uh, type 2 diabetes reduced uh, treatment uh, complexity and burden by you know reducing the number of basal insulin injections without actually compromising the, the management of blood sugar. It was actually a meta-analysis which was presented for all those new weekly basal insulin analogues. And I think it's w- what's probably the most important because... They, in, in a meta-analysis, you synthesize all available data for, for, those, uh, for, for those insulin analogues, uh, weekly analogues, is the fact that overall, the glycemic control which is being offered with these weekly uh, molecules is similar to the one which is being offered with the with with daily uh, insulin injections. And I think that's the most important thing to, to keep for our patients in, in, in mind.
0: And finally, what's your other takeaways or key highlights from the conference?
1: There were also other uh, important presentations during the meeting, for example, for uh, emerging anti-obesity treatments like for disepatides. Uh, I think part of the SAMAN clinical program was presented, which showed the really impressive efficacy of disepatide in terms of producing body weight in patients uh, with severe obesity or I think there was also a, a data for finerenone, which were presented, which is an effective treatment for patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD and chronic kidney disease, which uh, a treatment with finerenone in patients with type 2 diabetes and CKD had a, a, a beneficial effect both on cardiovascular disease as well as on uh, uh, chronic kidney disease, irrespective actually of, of use of SGLT inhibitors. So I think it is, it, it is really impressive how things are changing fast in, in, the, in the field of diabetes in terms of really uh, impressive effects on hard clinical outcomes, uh, which have completely changed the, the landscape of diabetes treatment over the last 10 years. Uh, it's something which is really very different as opposed to what we used to do back in 2012. And finally, I think from a an organizational perspective, the fact that the ESD has moved or is trying to move towards launching a new project of actually developing uh, evidence-based guidelines rather than solely focusing on producing consensus statements or clinical practice recommendations is also important because uh, uh, it is important to, uh, also for regulatory uh, organizations, uh, if an organization is uh, using the appropriate methodology, uh, which has been, I mean, presented back in uh, was presented back back in 2012 by the Institute of Medicine in the U.S. and is being, uh, I mean, followed all across the globe in order to produce really valid and uh, clinically relevant and evidence-based guidelines. Uh, the ESD are launching this project, and we are expecting to present the first guidelines sometime in probably one and a half or two years.
0: This brings us to the end of the episode. In the episode notes, you can find a link to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice website where you can claim CME credits for this episode and find lots more free resources to support your learning in diabetes. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review or rating to help other people find the podcast. Thank you for listening.